and welcome to Western Reaches episode 23. I'm one of your hosts, Saf, and with me as always is Megan. Greetings. So today we're going to talk about the usual things, some books we've been reading, some games we've been playing, and we're going to have our main topic as Abzu, which is a game that came out mid to late last year, which is about swimming and fish, and it's a really cool game. But first up, we're going to talk about some books. So Megan, what have you been reading recently? So I um I actually was sick earlier last week, so I ended up staying home for a little while. You might still be able to hear it in my voice, so if I make any horrible screeching sounds, I apologize. Um, <laughs> it's the screeching disease. No, not not really. It's a bad cough. <laughs> oh no. Um, so I finished this short story collection by China Mayville in about a day, I think because I was sick, so I just read it through. And um, it was really good. I really like his style. It was very frightening. And there was... So it's it's not straight horror. It's, it's new weird. Um, so if you know his novels, you know that it's kind of a lot of body horror and, like, subtly unsettling sort of, sort of world building. And the, the horror comes from the world, mostly. It's not like serial killers it's like something sort of is wrong with the entire universe that his characters habitate and um the one of them was so sort of gory that i didn't finish it but i liked a lot of them and there was um a a short story called the ballroom which was a surprisingly frightening ghost story set in an ikea um (laughs) there was um report of certain events in london which was written from the point of view of the author like the whole conceit was that a letter to someone to a i think it was a charles melville got sent to china mayville by mistake (laughs) so it was all that that sort of classic like written from the first person point of view of the author but it was also a really clever story about like predatory roads that appear and the people who map them and so that was that was really good what do you mean by predatory roads so sort of like you know if you walk down the block every day and one day you walk down and there's another road splitting splitting the block down the middle and they are like i wouldn't go so far as to say they eat people because it's not that overt it's more like they're just sort of very unsettling and i think at one point the people that map the roads mentioned some event happened like something happened we don't talk about and the roads sort of appear and disappear at will and have their own like society and their own grudges that's a really interesting concept it is, and these stories were super creative, and his world stuff is always super creative. And that was all set in, like, ostensibly the real world, and it was this secret society that knew about these roads and nobody else did. And then some of them are set in, like, secondary worlds, but quite a few of them are set in in England, in, uh, you know, in an altered version of the real world. Right, yeah. I still need to read some China Mevo because I keep forgetting to. 
I have one of his novels on my list. Next, I have a Iron Council is one of the few fast leg novels I haven't read yet. So we'll talk about that one later. But I, I really, really like his stuff. And his vocabulary is incredible. Some of these sentences, I'm just like, there's four words in here that I don't know. And now <laughs> I know them because I read them in this book. And it was great. But it's sort of like, now you're just showing off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess if you can, you might as well. Yeah, and he does it. He does it in a really good way. It never feels, at least to me, it never feels pretentious. It feels very creative and very skillful. Maybe to someone else it would feel different, but to me, I'm just like, no, this is amazing. I don't know what this means, but it's beautiful. <laughs> and it's very, he uses a lot of scientific language, and I, I like that a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had one of his books out a while back. Um something to do with garden or something and then i had to return it to the library because somebody had it on hold and i didn't read it in time so one day it'll happen i had read um he had a novella out recently and i'm just gonna check here to make sure i'm telling you the order of the novellas correctly because he put out a couple um not long ago let me see yeah so um, the Last Days of New Paris and The Census Taker both came out in 2016, so I read them recently, and they were very good and they were very weird, but he he pulled back on the vocabulary a little bit. So, like, going back to some of these, the vast lag story especially, I was just like, oh, right, this is what China Mayville is. <laughs> and it was, it was amazing. Ah, oh, that's awesome. I love him. Um, yeah, so the other one also has tinges of horror is a Universal Harvester by John Darnell of the band The Mountain Goats. Uh, was it the one you mentioned? Probably. Last week was a great week for The Mountain Goats on, like in Star Wars world because apparently he knows <laughs> Ryan Johnson. So he, like, they joked about him writing a song called, I think the title is The Last Jedi Who Eats, Who Kills All of the Other Jedi and Eats Their Bones or something. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. And um, so Ryan Johnson was like, LOL, yeah, you have to write that song. So he did. And <laughs> then it, it was sort of going around the internet. And it's a very weird song again it's exactly as gory as the title sounds but it's also like the mountain goats are great and they they have that song this year which is very much sort of in the ya like world like he likes john green a lot as well like he there's the crossover there so it was sort of like an inspiring song but also it was this incredibly weird gory star wars homage so like <laughs> That was that was great, and I loved it because I've I've liked the mountain goats for a long time, and then and then he followed me on Twitter, and then I remembered oh that God. oh he's got a novel coming out, so I went and pre-ordered the novel, and that is Universal Harvester. I'm sure you've mentioned that on a previous podcast or something because it sounds the moment you said it was written by somebody from the Mountain Goats, I was like I know this is a thing we've talked about. I might have done, because he had another book out. The previous one was called Wolf in White Van, which I really enjoyed. I might have liked 
wolf in white van a little bit better, but I think the characters were a little more solid, but Universal Harvester had a really interesting format. So it's um it's set in sort of the Midwest and it's about a guy who works at a video store, like a blockbuster. Um and there's this someone is splicing sort of horror found footage stuff into VHS tapes and he's trying to figure out why and it's narrated by a first person narrator but you don't find that out until like maybe four chapters in when you sort of quietly realize that the person that's narrating it like has their own opinions and then he drops like I drops like I did this in and you're like what there was a narrator Ooh. the whole time <laughs> and I oh. really liked that and that made I it I love that kind of stuff it's so cool it it was really cool there were a lot of scenes that broke very unexpectedly sort of the way scenes will break in a movie if you want to create tension and just kind of cut it right off there were a lot of scenes that did that so there were parts that made me really wonder why did he choose to cut it here? And I'm not sure all of those were quite as effective as they could have been because the end of the story was a little, didn't all quite come together as well as I would have liked, but it was really good. And it was actually like, it was unsettling, but it was not a depressing book, which is good because I've, I've been reading a lot that's like, I'm really enjoying it, but it's either depressing or just super violent. And so it was mm. like kind of nice to have something that wasn't. Um, yeah. But it, yeah. It, it was it was good. And I think especially if you like his music and sort of you like his aesthetic, because he writes very much about sort of the world he grew up in, and um, this has that aesthetic. So... I would I would recommend that. I don't I I still think he's got a better novel in him. But and I look forward to reading that novel. I feel like that that's quite a compliment for him as a person. I hope it comes off as a compliment instead <laughs> of a like you can do better. <laughs> so, no, I really did like like it. No, I think it does definitely, um, sorry, I think it does definitely read as like a, like, this is good, but I know there's, there's better in there. Like, I think that's a good thing to say about someone, even if they don't agree. Because <laughs> <laughs> his songwriting is amazing. And some of the themes he touches on in his songwriting really resonate with me. And I'm kind of waiting for a novel that will do the same. And I don't doubt it's out there. I did. I read right. Universal Harvester quite quickly. It was. I was really curious to see how it ended. It wasn't a particularly difficult read, but in a good way. In a like, oh, this is enjoyable, you know, sort of way. Yeah. And then on the complete opposite spectrum is Kaddish, which I've been working on for like six months or something, and is a combination personal journal and scholarly ex exploration of Jewish tradition. Um, I was recommended it by a, a friend and we were sort of like making notes in the margins and going, do we like agree with this and how do we feel about this? And it's a lot of research and like academic stuff that I don't know much about, but I'm finding out more about it. And it's, it's um, the Kaddish is, is 
a prayer that the author says. I think it's it's once a week. It's like on the um, on the Sabbath, um, and I hesitate because I'm not Jewish, so I'm very afraid I'm getting that wrong. But <laughs> I know that it's it's a sort of ritual of grief, and he has his father has died, and he takes on this this sort of burden of doing this every week and sort of it's about what he learns from it and what researchers and and rabbis who've gone before him have learned from it and argued about it and it was very sort of eye-opening it was I learned a lot and it was a really beautiful sort of explanation of a personal journey a little too navel-gazy at times he was you know sort of (laughs) it was a little bit hipster but it was uh, difficult it was a really rigorous read and I, I liked that and it was I think I will I and my friend will have a lot of fun sort of unpacking it yeah what inspired you to read it apart from your friend recommending it that, that's all really she and I <laughs> often talk about religion and she said you'll like the writing in it it had just beautiful uh turns of phrase and things she said you'll like the writing and let's talk about it That makes sense. I think that's a fair enough reason to read anything. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, it's one of those books where like, and we both agreed on this, like you read three or four pages or something, and then you reflect on them. And then you put it down for a while because you need to reflect it. It was not quick, but it was very, I think it was very valuable to read. Yeah, I definitely know those kinds of books. Yeah, completely different from from the other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of books, friends tell you to read. I I finished Nine Fox Gambit last week. Um, oh man, are you also in love? I loved it so much. It was really good. Um, <laughs> like, cause everyone had told so many people have told me about it. Like, people like greatly admire their book opinions of, but it didn't really prepare me for what it was actually about. Like, I went into it and I was like. I don't understand anything that's happening, but this is good. <laughs> Wait, so I guess first question, what did you expect it to be about that it was not? And second question, did you also find the calendrical weaponry to be sort of impenetrable? Um, I, uh, I'm not even sure what I expected it to really be about. Like, I knew it was about a, a person with a ghost kind of connected to them, like a sci-fi kind of ghost connected to them, and, um, fighting and maths, but I didn't really, like, <laughs> it is very, it is kind of very ancillary justice in the way that there's a lot of, like, philosophical discussion of why things are <laughs> happening and how things are happening, which I kind of expected, but also didn't expect in a way, like... It does a lot in exploring the world and within its prose, and that was really cool. I liked that, but I was—I don't know what—I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't whatever I got. But I did love it, anyways. Um, as for the calendrical weaponry and everything, that was weird. <laughs> like I didn't really understand anything that was going on there, but I was like. I enjoy whatever this is anyways. I even had a dream like two nights ago that I'm pretty sure was my brain trying to comprehend like the exotics that happened in the book because it was like me and somebody else having a fight with weird stuff like that. And then I woke up and I was like, was this inspired by Nine Fox Gambit? That's amazing. I want to have a dream about that. (laughs) (laughs) It was really weird. I was trying to like get to the grocery store and they kept trying to 
stop me with like these calendrical <laughs> effects and I was like leave me alone um <laughs> I hate when I'm trying to go to the grocery store and the kells just get in the way <laughs> right so annoying <laughs> I really enjoyed I really enjoyed the use of maths in the book because it wasn't like impenetrable maths I didn't understand it was just maths that were happening and the characters understood it and then it was like yes they're doing math and I was like cool I enjoy this because in concept I find the idea of mathematics really exciting but in practice I can't do it yeah I like that the main character's strength was that she was good at math she wasn't like a great tactician per se but she was really good at math which is yeah. also something that I'm not particularly good at. So I, I admire that. <laughs> yeah, one of my friends who recommended it to me is like really into maths. That's what she does. So she was really excited about this book. Um, yeah, it was it was good. I loved the characterization between Cheris and... Um, J- oh, I forgot his name. Jidao? <laughs> Jidao? 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 I'm not sure how to pronounce it. The ghost guy, yeah. I really liked the um, interactions between them. I still don't, like, I don't know where he sits in life in general. Like, the ending kind of, like, gives you an insight into him. But I'm still just, like, I want the next book, basically. I know. I, (laughs) yeah, definitely you're always kind of wondering what side is he on. There's that that chapter where, I don't know if it's chapter nine or something, where she, he basically is, like, I can talk anyone into doing anything here. I'll prove it to you. And just yeah. like destroys her verbally. Just Oh like, my God. Yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> and yeah. Because- and it's, it, it makes it hard to know. Yeah. Where he is and who he actually is, because you know, from the start that he can manipulate really well. Yeah. And on the other hand, she, he needs her because he can't do what she can do. And she like, showed such resilience and she's also like such a normal person like this is a bit about where she watches cheesy dramas and he's like why are you like this <laughs> yeah <laughs> i love that scene oh and i love the robots too i didn't actually realize that there were yes. like robots in there yes. they were really cool <laughs> those like again they're not really explained and i wish they i mean they're they're drones basically but i wish they were explained hmm. a little bit more but also they were just like so cute that i couldn't complain because they were just too great for me to complain about oh, they were adorable i love them so much i hope that they're a big part of the the next book cuz they were part like they were some of my favorite bits of this book not because they were robots but because they were just adorable and they the the writing about them was just so cool it was. I really have no idea what's going to go on in the next book. And I think just like from knowing the ending, there's a lot of a lot of questions. Yeah, for real. I was like, it was wrapping up and I was like, cool, that seems like a good ending to the book. And then it had the whole like last bit and I was like, okay, I don't know what's happening anymore. Yeah, okay, <laughs> everything just changed. Yeah, yes. pretty much. <laughs> and then I, um, oh, sorry. No, you you mentioned the the pace and the sort of like philosophical discussions, and that's something I really liked about it, and something that like it it felt like fanfic a little, like the way the author took time to really pay attention to not only what the characters were doing, but what they were thinking and in their interpersonal relationships. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Yeah. 
I liked, I liked, yeah, the philosophical stuff as well. I think that's part of the reason I like the ancillary books so much. Even though it's not what those books are called. I like them um, for a lot of that as well. Like, I really enjoy that in my sci-fi. Like, when it's not just, like, constant action. There's actually, like, time to take a break and reflect on what is making the universe run as it does. Especially when it's such, like, an alien kind of universe. Like, the calendrical rot and all that stuff happening was really hard to comprehend. But the way that the book, like, the way the prose kind of handled it made it that even if I couldn't visualize it, I kind of was like, yes, this seems like a real thing in this universe. Yeah, for sure. And Yoon Ha Lee's <laughs> short stories are like that too. I'm I'm reading the short story collection at the moment and they're actually like so similar to the style of the novel that I had to be like, okay, I have to put this down for a while because I'm like getting overwhelmed with the similarity of the stories, which is <laughs> not necessarily a bad thing. I think short stories aren't necessarily all meant to be read one after another in a row like they are in a collection mm-hmm. but that's a a repeating theme the sort of ta- making these very strange worlds very real because the humanity of the characters comes across so well and also the math thing shows up a lot <laughs> <laughs> i hear he's written some interactive fiction so i'm excited to track that down Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, apparently That's he's written cool. some stuff for um, Sub-Q magazine, which publishes interactive fiction. And so I really want to read some of that because I'm, I'm very curious. Oh, man. I did see, I followed him on Twitter recently, and he was saying that, like, I appreciate the comparison to Ancillary Justice, but they're one was not inspired by the other. I was writing Nine Fox Gambit and writing this type of stuff before that book ever came out, like, chill with the comparison. (laughs) So I I felt, like, kind of bad. But anyway, I wanted to clarify that myself because Uh, although we we made the comparison, Yoon Ha Lee apparently publicly feels a bit, like, slighted by it. So... (laughs) I mean, Back for me, <laughs> I compare them because I like, like, they're both real, like, they're not similar per se, but they write the same kind of sci fi that I love a lot. Um, like, if I'd read Nine Fox Gambit first and then read Ancillary Justice, I would have been like, Ancillary Justice is like Nine Fox Gambit, kind of. But um, I can definitely understand yeah, the frustration yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, and I, I can see the similarity, and I, I like them both for slightly different reasons, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But um, yeah, I finished that and then went on to a different book, which was also sci-fi and I am not enjoying anywhere near as much. But I'm reading Altered Carbon, which I got recommended a while back. And I couldn't remember who recommended it to me or why. I just knew that somebody had told me to read it. So I started reading it and um, it's got a lot of similarities to the serial I'm writing at the moment. So I think that's why it got recommended to me because it similar ideas, so completely different premise and everything. Um, But it's basically <laughs> about this guy who gets his mind transferred into like a human sleeve which is like an empty body i guess to that's, do that's very gross yeah <laughs> it's a gross way of putting it but like he, yeah his conscious gets transferred into like this human body to um because they don't have like fast and light travel across the universe so they have to do that basically to send consciousness and information across planets to get people to different places um and so he gets put in somebody's body on earth to solve a murder of this guy who got uploaded into a different body and claims that he was murdered and then the police are telling him that he was he'd committed suicide and so the the 
main character is trying to solve that mystery. Um, I'm not super far into the book because this author is really into writing about how much his male character is sexually into all of the women he meets. <laughs> and every time it happens, yeah. I'm just like, why does this happen every time? Um, so I'm kind of struggling with that. Also, it's due back tomorrow and I'm only like a fifth through. <laughs> so I'm probably not going to finish it and I'm probably not going to get it out again to read it because as much as I like the concept and the writing is pretty decent, I just can't handle dudes doing that in books anymore. This might be, I mean, this is a very flash judgment because all I know about it is what you just said, but it almost sounds like a noir detective novel with like a sci-fi cover on it. Is that, it is would you say absolutely, that absolutely noir. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it even gets called that on the cover somewhere. I always forget how much noir novels do that until I start reading them and I'm just like, oh yes, this is why I don't read much noir. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, I was talking to somebody else about this recently how like it's such a low bar to clear but like one of the most basic sort of sort of tropes or tropes isn't quite the right word but I guess behaviors that authors fall into is to want to describe all of the women as beautiful and it just mm. bugs me and it's always bugged me and I'll try not to go on about it too much but yes, yeah that's something that needs to be stopped <laughs> yeah it bugs me so much as well and I think that's why like because last year I read so much sci-fi by woman and I suddenly like realized once I went back to like books about written by dudes I was like ah yes this is why I enjoy the woman book so much more is because they don't do this or they do it in different ways like oh my god it just it frustrates me whenever it happens and it happens every time and usually I think I've said before but I don't usually look at the authors of books before I read them I just pick up the book and start reading it and I can tell 100% of the time whether or not it's written by a dude within like the first five pages because that happens yeah and every time I sort of like I expect I think like oh maybe a book written in 2017 won't do this like people know not <laughs> to do this now and then there yeah. it is still I think one of the main problems is that the people who write these books read the same books like they like yes men yes. who write sci-fi read a lot of the sci-fi classics or like the popular sci-fi books which are all written by white dudes who write the same thing and so they write their books and they do the same thing and it's just like this vicious cycle of not yeah like you said like a behavior in the writing that just keeps happening because they keep doing it and they don't like people it's hard for people to break out of what they do read in a genre like if you have been reading white dudes your whole life it's harder to branch out and find other books because you're already in that circle kind of thing and i think that's one of the problems is that because people don't read diverse they don't write as well as they could yeah, and you kind of, well, I, I kind of forget that not everyone reads the same, basically, you know, not everyone subscribes to the same mailing lists as I do. Like, yeah. not everyone reads diverse books as a matter of course. And it took me a long time as a writer to realize things like, you know, the way you describe people can be can be better. It doesn't just have to be subjective. You know, there are ways to to do it that don't they're not just talking about whether the person is attractive or not it's it's going to be more detailed than that and that's just good craft but it gets missed so many times yeah and that's really unfortunate because some of these like the idea of altered carbon is really cool and i think i would probably enjoy it if i 
could um get it out for another month and actually finish it but i don't have the time and i have so many other books to read that i'm just like i'm sorry book but this this kicked you off the list yeah we got a little sidetracked there is there anything else that you like (laughs) that you particularly liked or disliked about that book um I'm not sure. There was some cool, like, science fiction-y stuff that they kind of talked about that I feel like we'll go into more later. And I always enjoy stuff that does cool sci-fi stuff, because that's why I read sci-fi. But apart from that, it kind of seems like just a normal sort of sci-fi noir book. I mean, because I read some Philip K. Dick a while back, so I'm already like, I've already had my fill of sci-fi noir for a little while. I'm good. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. So, um... Yeah, let's talk about games. <laughs> let's talk about games. Yeah, so, so what have you been playing? I played two games this week, both of which had Meditate as a possible action. So <laughs> that's how that's going. Um, one of them is Abzu, which we'll talk about later. The other one is Neighbor, which is a game that I'd been wanting to play for a while. It's available for mobile as part of the Trianal Game Collection, which is a, a, a museum put it out. It's like a museum curated collection of interactive uh, art, you know, and they actually update it every once in a while. So the exhibits, quote, are not always the same, but some some games like Neighbor are always in it. And uh, Neighbor was made by um, Cardboard Computer, which is the same studio that did Kentucky Route Zero. I think it might be, it might not be the same people exactly. It might not all be the same individuals, but it's the same company and um, some some of the same individuals. And it is this little sort of interactive story. It's, I don't have good vocabulary for this. Um, <laughs> It's one of those more experience-than-a-game things where you are a cowboy in a desert and you can interact with different objects around you. So there's a workbench, there's a writing desk, there's like a, a pot where you can cook things, there's a chest where you can put your treasured items, and there's a monolith which you can give offerings to. And you can interact with these different things. And apparently there are ways to craft things. And, like, there are certain interactions you can kind of unlock. But most of it is more about sort of finding the the poetry in it. Like, you can sit next to the pool of water and meditate. And every time you do that, it will give you a different message. Like, a calming, sort of eerie message. Or when you leave things at the monolith, it will take them and it will give you back something else. So I um, I gave it a news- an old newspaper and it gave me today's newspaper. Um, <laughs> so there's some like fun kind of cute little interactions and there's an- one other character. There's a-, a cowboy who wanders by. I only, I only met him once. I played for about an hour and he, he wandered through once and he's the only other character. Um, I found myself kind of making a narrative, making a narrative up because there wasn't one. Apparently, there are some hints of like what's going on. And somebody wrote on the internet that the 
the desert you're in is actually a meteor crater and you can like find pieces of the meteor which i thought was really cool but i never would have guessed on my own um Hmm. so what i ended up doing was sort of creating this sort of narrative of my own where i would write things because you can you can write poems and it's just like you pick a type of poem so like nature poem or confessional poem was one of them and you never see them they're not like the poems themselves aren't in the game they just become part of your inventory and you can leave them at the monolith so i left it i think i left it a poem no wait how did it go it gave me a pencil i left (laughs) it a poem it took the poem and gave me a dead bird (laughs) 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 and i was just like thank you and then I found myself like, oh, what happens if I give this other type of poem to the monolith? What will it give me? And like, it wouldn't, it takes some and not others. So sometimes they just don't show up in your inventory. And I had this like terrible realization that I was just going about my life in this game because I was writing and then presenting my writing to a large unknowable block of stone. And then... <laughs> waiting to see what would happen and I was just like this is this is my job I can't like this is the game like flayed me psychologically (laughs) that's impressive (laughs) it it was um I don't know if if everyone in all professions would be so easily find themselves walking in familiar paths but (laughs) um neighbor was definitely a psychological experience for me (laughs) and and like I don't um I'm probably not gonna dig around with it too much because it there's certainly like depth to find there but it's super calming there isn't much sense of a reward because you don't know really what's going on but it's a really well-crafted feeling of you don't know what's going on I think that's what matters really I think so, In certainly in this case. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> I haven't um, tried the other games in the collection yet, but I, I might because I have them now. And it's free, so if you're interested in that, it's Tree and All Game Collection. I like those kinds of games, like the little, I guess, kind of narrative experiences, even though the narrative, you were kind of making it largely, which I think is... Um, what some of those games try and achieve is that they try and give you the building blocks and then let you create what you want somewhat within the game. Yeah, and I absolutely got that sense that you could sort of make make it what you wanted it to be. Yeah, definitely. Um, so and that was all. I'll talk more about Abzu later. Yeah. <laughs> um, I... I played a few games this week. I'm not actually going to talk about all of them because I played a lot of games this week, or these last two weeks, rather. Um, I finally finished Zero Time Dilemma, which I've been playing for ages, and I still don't know how I feel about it. It's not as good as the other games in the series because it's the final game in a trilogy, and it's interesting. It is weird. If you haven't played the other games, I wouldn't recommend it. If you have played the other games, I would recommend it, I think. Um... (laughs) There ended up being a robot in it, which was exciting. <laughs> That's good. I don't remember. Did you talk about what you liked about it before? I mentioned previously that um, in the previous games, there's a lot of... You play as one character throughout 
the first game and then you change to a second character that you play throughout the second game. And so you would play as those one those two characters. Like the whole game you play as one person. And then in this game it changes it so that there are three groups of three characters and you can swap between the lead character of each group, basically. And um so you play as you kind of play as everyone within the game because you control each group somewhat. And because of that it took away a lot of what the previous two games had where you couldn't trust anyone because you kind of play as everyone. So whenever you have a choice that you could betray someone else, like one of the other teams, the game doesn't generally give you the choice to betray them because it's you. So there's not much point doing that. Um, And I didn't really enjoy that until I got further on the game and I realized that the game actually gives you the choice. It puts the choice of betrayal onto the victim so there's a point in the game where there's a puzzle and you have to get an antidote because you've been poisoned and you find out at the end of it that another team has been poisoned and you have to give them the antidote. And I thought that the game was going to give me the choice to not give them the antidote because if six people die, your team escapes basically. Um, and I was like, no, don't give them the antidote, then we can escape, obviously. But the game didn't give me that choice. It, it sent the antidote to them and then i later played that chunk of the game with that team where they get the antidote and they get the choice on whether or not to drink it and i was like this is interesting because <laughs> it makes the victim choose whether or not to die basically and because it's still you as the player playing it you have to make that choice to kill yourself essentially um to let the other team go through so instead of being a choice of betrayal it's a choice of sacrifice and once i got to that point in the game i started finding it more interesting i think Oh, that is interesting. So it's, I mean, I like the way you describe that as a, a choice of sacrifice, but that wasn't <laughs> the mechanic you were looking for, right? Like that wasn't the mechanic you expected when you signed on. No, it wasn't. When I started playing the game, because I the previous games, I was I was bitter by the point of this game because in the last one I knew I'd get I got betrayed and people broke my heart and I was like, okay, this time not gonna happen. I'm gonna be the worst person ever. I'm gonna win, even though you can't really win. You have to get all endings to finish the game. But um, I kind of went in with that point of view, and then I because of the way this game is, the way it frames the choices, I was totally like thrown out of what I was going to do and so it kind of made me even more bitter as I played through it more because I was like just let me betray these people I just want to get out of this place (laughs) um so yeah I definitely wasn't expecting that like it was totally different from what I was expecting because it did definitely change up how the games like how the previous two games have done it um but I think in the end it worked well I'm still not really sure the plot twist was very unexpected and as which with those games is kind of expected um but yeah, I think my biggest problem with it is that it had too much of a happy ending somewhat. And I'm not, I wasn't expecting that either. Hmm. I don't want to go into like asking spoiler questions, <laughs> but that's, <laughs> so you just, you, you didn't want the happy ending at that point. You just wanted your revenge. <laughs> somewhat, yeah, a little bit. I mean, <laughs> to be honest, like these games are largely about alternate universes and stuff. So there's different endings and branching endings and all that stuff. So, I mean, I could just take one of the other alternate endings and be like, yes, this is this is the bad ending I want. But I don't know. It's it's a good game, I think. And if you like play the previous two games, which are the Nonera games, um, you'll probably enjoy it because it is a good conclusion to the trilogy, I think. But it isn't as good as... Virtual's Last Reward, which is the second game in the trilogy, which I really, really liked. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
And I also played, speaking of games with decisions, I also played Banner Saga 2, which I loved so much. Um, I think it took a lot of what I didn't like in the first game and kind of made it better. Like it solidified how the game works, I think. So in the first game, I had some problems with making choices because it doesn't give you enough kind of an indication sometimes of whether or not it's a really bad decision that you're making, which is kind of the point, but also I think it goes too far sometimes. And the second game didn't really have that problem. Like each choice felt like it had proper consequences and going into them, I felt more prepared for what they would give me, which was probably helped by me playing the first game. But um, there were also more ladies in the second game, which is great. And it was it was good. It was a solid it was a solid game and now I'm really mad that I have to wait for the third game to be kickstarted and then made before I can play it. Oh no. <laughs> uh, more more ladies are always good. Yeah, I got like four ladies in my team at some point, which was twice as many as I had last time. And also there's a lady mage in the second game that you can actually play as in one of the story branches, which was really cool. Now why why does it need to be kickstarted? Were the others kickstarted or Yeah, the first two I think the first two were kickstarted together, possibly. Or they kickstarted the first one, then they had enough money from that to make the second game. And so they have to kickstart the third game because they're true indie and they're not gonna get a publisher, which is, you know, a little bit questionable. But if it works for them, that's fine. Okay. Got it. Yeah. I, I knew I'd heard of them, but I wasn't sure if they were if they were like sort of ascended indie or if they were still at that like no we're just kickstarting because that's how we do it stage so that that answers the question thank you yeah yeah I really I want them to hire me to write for them because I would really love to write for Banner Saga like it is the kind of game writing I would love to do it's really there's so much there's so many characters and there's so much that happens and it's just it's very cool and um in this game, I played the main character, Rook, as like, because in the first game, I'd gotten really bitter. You can tell I get bitter a lot in these games, but I got really bitter <laughs> in the first game. And then I continued that over into the second game. And so I was playing the main character, Rook, as like this really bitter man who was like taking no survivors and leaving people behind to die. And then um, one of the other characters you play as, because it has like different stories that happen. One of the other characters I played is the lead of the Ravens, who are, like this criminal organization, who's meant to be this cold-hearted guy. And I ended up playing him like really empathetic and trying to save everyone's lives. And I was just like, what have I done with this game? What have I done with these characters? <laughs> well, it certainly sounds like you're engaged with the characters a lot, like to have such strong feelings about them. Yeah, I would definitely recommend those books because they're really books. Those games, they kind of are books because you just read a lot, but they're really, really they're good games. And they, I think they do well with um, giving the player a lot of agency, but also a lot of consequences. Cool. Yeah. And then I also played um, with one of my friends, one of the friends who recommended me Nine Fox Gambit, actually. Um, we played a couple games that involved multiplayer via communication so we played um this game called we were here which is this short multiplayer game that you play online um where you talk to each other through walkie talkies so you actually have to push a button and like use the walkie talkie um and you play there's one explorer and one librarian and the explorer explorers i was the explorer so i know what they actually do they explore around and they solve puzzles and stuff and the librarian i assume is like in a library and they help you solve puzzles but i think the librarian also goes other places because other things happen i don't know i haven't played the librarian yet um and it's really fun 
because you get to play with a friend and it's both of you just freaking out because it turns out it's a little bit of a scary game. Huh. And <laughs> there was um the first thing I said to my friend was I picked up the walkie-talkie and then I heard this freaky sound and she hadn't found the walkie-talkie yet. So I pushed it. I was like, there's a scary sound over. And that was <laughs> that was how that game started for us. Excellent. <laughs> that sounds yeah. uh, like a good party game, sort of a good social one. Yeah, I'd recommend it, like, if you have a friend who lives somewhere else to play with, because it's, a, like, you don't really have time to talk, really, during it, but it's a good way to test your team skills with somebody else to see if you actually communicate well, which is just, like, the other game we played, Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes, also another good game to see if you work well as a team with someone, because you really do have to work well as a team, because um, if you don't know, Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes is basically where somebody has a bomb in front of them. And then there's other people who have a PDF, which explains how to defuse different parts of the bomb. And you can play it with as many people as you want, but more people obviously makes it more difficult. And the person who has the bomb can't see the PDF, and the people with the PDF can't see the bomb. And so they have to communicate to try and defuse the bomb, and it's stressful as heck because there's a timer and there's lots happening. And apparently me and my friend are a really good team because we actually got like we only died once and we got really far through and diffused a lot of bombs together um it was really fun i really really like that game i want to play it in vr because it seems like it'd be really really cool ah that's that's awesome that's one that i love the concept but i've never actually played because i i I do think like it would be it would be really good for someone that that you know very well and like Mm. i don't know it'd be a not so much like a party game like you want to have 15 people there but like well like you said it's a team building game i really love the idea of that like half of it is sort of really low tech like you can print out a manual and the one person's just has a manual while the other person is playing a video game and i kind of love that like the sort of tactile experience of that yeah yeah, I really like it. Um, and that's why I kind of like the idea of the VR one as well, because I love the idea of VR party games where the person, like there's one person in the VR set, and they just look like an idiot and everyone else is laughing at them while they play the game, because that's a way to have the VR experience without having to like fit out everyone in VR. Um, so I'd love to play it in that one day. And I think, uh, I was going to say something else and I've forgotten what it is now, but I just love games that we have to work together cooperatively with a friend because I love cooperative stuff. I hate I hate competitive multiplayer because I'm not competitive and I think my friend who I played this with um, we also love doing escape rooms together so I think her and I are just two people that work well as a team and like solving problems together whereas there are some friends I can think of who I would never play this Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes game with because they would rip my head off and it would be terrifying. Yeah, you you want to be able to be kind of chill about it. Yeah. <laughs> so that question of, uh, or that comment about you don't really like competitive multiplayer, but you do like team games, kind of seems to me like a good segue into the, the survey that we wanted to talk about. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so there was a recently a survey from Quantic Lab which is a social science research project according to Killscreen which is the website that that had an article about this um they did uh research on sort of preferences 
let me start again. <laughs> they researched <laughs> um, which, what games people of different genders prefer. I'm trying really hard not to say both genders because while they separated it into male and female, I'm aware that those are not the only gender distinctions. That's what's going on here. <laughs> mm. um, so they did this gender-based survey about what kind of video games do you like and the conclusion that was made in the headline was that women tend to like fighting games or like war games as much as men do but the type of setting and the type of weapon that they prefer are different and the headline was basically um the headline that I really loved is not the one that's showing up on the mobile version at the moment, but it was like, female gamers want to kill you, but just not with guns or something. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that, that caught my eye immediately. So the majority of female players, and I'm going to scroll down to the chart here and see. Now, it's not displaying well on mobile, but you can find it on kill screen. It is. It shows that more men like to play realistic shooter games with like based in world world wars or with actual weapons whereas women tend to prefer magic or like bows and arrows and the article or the survey brought up a really interesting point that that's not necessarily like an inborn preference it's more about how the games are marketed games that are high fantasy tend to be tend to have more customizable characters and be marketed more to women. Whereas games that are like hard military tend to have only male characters and be marketed more toward men. So it's less about preference and more about marketing. Um, and I found this super interesting and immediately went to the, the contrarian part, which is that I like sci-fi shooters so like i'm an exception to this um i but i don't like realistic war games i'm not really interested in something set in a historical conflict so mm. i thought this was interesting so what did you what did you think i really like the subheading that they have which is female gamers are more selective about how they kill things um <laughs> <laughs> i thought the survey was really interesting because it's not really something People tend to shy away from the idea of violence in video games because they don't want to go over that topic again for the millionth time. So I thought it was really interesting to look at it with regards to genders because obviously there's a lot of research about genders and how the different <laughs> genders play games as well. Um, and I mean, I very much like shooting people with guns in sci-fi games, but I am the same as you. I I really don't like historical games, especially like the the new Battlefield with this which or World War One, I, I think. I don't know. Um, you can tell how much I don't care about it. But I definitely agree that um, the way games are marketed and made does probably influence it a lot. Like, there are probably women who would love to, like, shoot things with guns, but then the gun games are all macho dudes being boring. And so, like, why would we play that kind of thing? Um, I think there's, like, a whole little bit about, like, rethinking what an FPS could be. And I think that's something that would be good to look at for game studios because there are a lot of first person shooters and a lot of them are just the same thing which is very boring and if they need to think about it differently because of female gamers then fine do that because it does need to be looked at i think yeah and that's that goes back to kind of what 
the kind of thing we've been discussing all along, right? Which is that feeling of you want to feel included in the game. You won't. You don't want to feel that it's not for you. And a lot of times, games, I think games that are based in historical eras tend to take that view that, oh, it was, it was all men fighting, which is not necessarily historically accurate even. Mm. And that can sort of turn female players off a little bit. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. And I think games, because we've got games like Call of Duty, which took forever to actually get a female character within it because apparently women are too hard to animate, which is exactly what Assassin's Creed did as well. Um, and I think high fantasy is just, because a lot of, there's a lot of romance books that are high fantasy as well. Or like a lot of high fantasy books have like romance in them that it's easy to like, because women gamers do often like, this is a broad generalization, but there are a lot of women gamers I know who like to have romance or like relationships with characters in games. And so I think you're more likely to find that in those games as well. Like this could totally be wrong. I'm just going off of what I know. Um, Whereas if you play an FPS, you're probably not likely to have like interesting relationships with other characters because you're just busy shooting people, depending on the game, obviously. But like I'm thinking of stuff like Dragon Age or The Witcher, where they put a lot of effort into relationships in the game, which is one of the driving forces of their fandoms. Yeah, I think I think that's true. The sort of the way the story is told is different. That makes me think of like Assassin's Creed is a historical but not entirely accurate game that includes likable characters includes relationships includes you know a number of women there's still not an equal number of female protagonists but there there are female characters um that's one that i feel like is not necessarily the end goal like assassin's creed can do a lot better with representation in some ways but there's that sort of alternate history opens up the possibility for storytelling that is a little bit more open and that might be something that like that shooters can learn from yeah i agree with that i think this article is full of sort of hilarious quotes i think my other favorite (laughs) is women don't mind killing things with magical spells and swords (laughs) (laughs) I like that, yeah, because it's like women rated weapons that would lead to up close and personal violence just as favorably as men. So apparently we like close personal violence. (laughs) Yeah. And I, like, I prefer either, like, the DMR, like a nice ranged rifle Mm. sort of thing, or melee weapons. I love, like, being able to smack somebody in the face in, in a game. And, um... I feel like the one exception to this is the bow and arrow thing. Like, I never, I have yet yet to find a game in which I found bow and arrow mechanics fun, and I hope that Horizon Zero Dawn changes that. I think the one game I've ever found bow and arrow mechanics interesting was The Last of Us, because it actually feels like it has, like, a weight to the shots. But that's the only game I've ever felt that in. Yeah, and that's that's the problem, I think. They don't tend to be weighted right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I like, yeah, because the Kill Screen article used Ellie with the bow as, like, the header photo. And I was like, yep, yeah, I definitely enjoy that. Yeah. And that's, so it's, a, it's an interesting article. If any of our listeners have thoughts on it, we'd be happy to hear them, I think. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's an interesting contrast to the game we're going to talk about, Abzu. I I was just going to say, like, now welcome to a game that has no weapons at all. No violence whatsoever. I mean, (laughs) a little violence, I guess, but not in the same way. Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, so you just played Abzu, right? What did you think about it? I did. I played Abzu for the first time. I thought it was wonderful. It, um... So a lot of the reviews said that it was relaxing, that it was very sedate. It it really was. It was, um, there's some scientific phenomenon where, like, watching fish is calming. I don't know if it's sort of a, a an old wives' tale or what, but the <laughs> idea is that, like, watching things that move smoothly in patterns are, is just sort of inherently calming and that's what this game was the entire time was just about flows and watching water move and um it also it has meditation spots so it encourages you to sit and meditate and it took me (laughs) there are so few mechanics in this game that i'm (laughs) embarrassed that it took me any time at all to learn any of them because there's like three possible things you could do and that's it but um the meditation, you could kind of, when you meditate, you like, this scene zooms out and you can see all the fish and stuff around you and you can scroll through them and learn their scientific names and they're all like actual animals. And I was just like, this is delightful. I feel like I'm learning. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I found the mythology of it really interesting. I was... I sort of struggled to describe it when I was I was telling a friend about it and struggled to describe the mechanic of like you have the two different types of water basically and you mm-hmm. have to release a different type of water into the landscape and the ocean sort of separates and it opens up a new place you can go because now there's a new type of water there and then so I thought it was a really interesting mechanic, and then in the um, the credits they mention a Babylonian text. It was like you know with text from this, and so I just I googled it, and it turns out it's based on a, a Babylonian creation myth, I believe, about the separation of the salt water and fresh water. So it, what I was thinking the whole time of the magical water was really salt water and fresh water um and I thought that was really really cool is like journey in that um the sort of background isn't explained explicitly you just have have it in the back of your head and I was definitely left wondering what the backstory was more so than in journey I think it's often compared to journey but I felt that there were more unanswered questions or at least a little sort of bit of dissatisfaction with the way all the questions were were framed. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. There's a little less, I guess, closure in Abzu. I think part of that comes from um, the fact that you have a companion in Journey, so part of the closure in that is finishing the journey with someone else, whereas in Abzu, it's just you exploring this one place. And so... Yeah. It kind of the closure kind of has to come from yourself, not just from the companionship with somebody else. Yeah, and I mean, do we do we want to go into Abzu spoilers or? Um, might as well. Let's just warn people first, I guess. <laughs> well, no, I guess I guess I'll say it. 
it undergoes a genre shift. Like, it's mm. a science fiction game, but you don't know that until you're three quarters of the way in, right? Yeah, that very much happens. I think I got more invested in the world building then because it's science fiction, obviously. Yeah, I was like, yes, yeah, science too. fiction. <laughs> I did too. Yeah. <laughs> I identify with this character so much more now that I know this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yep, yep. And I, it definitely left me wondering, like, what what's out there you can you can surface like the whole thing is about diving but you can go up to the surface of the water if you want to and every once in a while i'd go look around and be like i just i really want to go over there and see what's Mm. going on and i can't but that's a good thing too because that means the game created an impression of an enormous world yeah, I remember one of the first times I surfaced and I looked around in the sky and I saw like this floating black things and yeah. I was like, oh, there's something else happening here. And that was kind of the first hint I got that it was more sci-fi than I realized. Um, and I really like that touch of like things far away that kind of signify something else happening in the world. For sure. Were you also... Did you also try to fill in the gaps of the story before you knew about the influence that the writers drew from? Or, like, did you... What was your personal interpretation of it the first time you played? I honestly did not know about that Babylonian thing. I'm surprised I didn't, because I I spent a lot of time looking up, like, the meaning of the game and everything, and I must have just totally missed that. Um, But my interpretation was that, like, the two waters, like, one of them was... um, Oh, I don't remember what it was, like, they a power source, like, made from water or something, or, like, a different kind of water made from water. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was, like, a synthetic water, basically, was what yeah, I thought, yeah. yeah. Um, And so it was kind of, like, that had killed the ocean because it wasn't the right, it was fake, and it was draining life from the ocean, basically. Like, it was a life water kind of thing. Um, And I think that was kind of my interpretation of it. And then as I went further through, I was like, I have no clue what my interpretation is anymore, but I'm enjoying what's happening. And by the end of the game, I wasn't really sure what I thought the narrative was. Like, I knew there were enough hints to build my own narrative, but I was like, you know, I'll come back to this and figure it out later. And then I never really got the chance to come back to it and figure it out later. Huh. That's, I think, I think you're on to something with the idea of, like, it's sort of electrical water, right? And it, mm. it does, it powers things. And there's very much this environmentalist message of like, don't mess with the ocean, you know, don't sort of destroy the thing that gives you life. Yeah, I think it was very much a game about the idea of balance when it comes to like the world and nature, because it seemed like in the in the glyphs and everything you can find that there was a balance at some point and then it got tipped and that's when everything went wrong and so you're kind of there to restore that balance somewhat i like i think you're definitely right that is don't mess with the ocean because you'll ruin everything because that's very much the message this game has and i think that's a good message um and it doesn't really whack you over the head with it which is kind of nice because it, it very much is the message of the world in the game and that balance thing is in there too because the like along the way you find you find robots that help you, right? The little submarine guys. Oh my god, I love um, them. <laughs> which look almost exactly like the little helper robots in Soma, which just hurt my heart and also made me slightly <laughs> afraid. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but very different types of games. Very different. Same setting, though. Mm. Um, so, like, you can... They help you out. So it's not like... It's not a 
completely anti-technology game. It's just, yeah, like you said, you need to find a balance. Yeah, and I think the game does really well in um, kind of giving you threats and then making you look at the threats in a different way. Like, I'm trying to say this without any spoilers, but yeah, you get things and you're like, this is kind of scary or this is threatening, and then you kind of get through a certain part in the game and you're like, oh, I was just looking at that wrong kind of thing. Um, it very much uses shifts perspective, I think, to tell the story. Yeah, and well, by the end, it becomes so abstract that you can interpret yeah. it in a lot of different ways. But yeah, I, I, I would agree. And it never, like, it, it was never scary, but it was tense enough that it was interesting. And I, I only got to play it through once. Unfortunately, I was too busy to, to go back again. But um, I did feel that it was sort of a, it was, it was could almost be good as a relaxation tool, like kind of a game to just escape into and mm. say, okay, I'm going to play a little bit and then I'm going to sort of meditate with it and then I'm done. And it never it never became so stressful that I felt like I couldn't do that. It, it, it was intense. It had like emotional hooks to it, but it didn't, it never felt alarming, right? Yeah. I think it got a bit stressful for me a couple times because my computer lagged a lot when there are um, a lot of mines. And so there was one particular area that was very stressful to get through. <laughs> but oh, yeah. that wasn't the game's fault. That was me using old hardware. Um, I think I really appreciate the meditation thing it has in it because it kind of, it forces you, well, it doesn't really force you, it's a choice, but it gets you to take a moment to just step back from the gameplay and just look at the world around you and the fish around you and learn about their scientific names, which is so cool. I love that so much. And it gives you, yeah, this moment of peace that you can choose to last as long as you want. And you just kind of, it you admire the world. Like it's not the real world outside, but it's this gorgeous little world in this game. And you just sit there and you're like, yes, this is very nice. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it wasn't like there was no character either. I felt that the player, while well, the the player character, while they never speak, you could definitely interpret them the way you wanted to. Like you could interpret, oh, this this character is meditating for a particular reason. It didn't. It didn't take you so far out of the game that the game felt fake. It just felt like it was all sort of nice and unified. Yeah, like, when the character meditates, it's, they're obviously doing it for a reason, like, I mean, you made them, but the game gives you a reason for the character to meditate, and so you kind of have to, like, when I first did it, I was like, what is the significance of this character meditating like this? What does it mean? And the game didn't entirely answer that, but I I found that really cool that, like, doing something like that, even though it's your choice, kind of gave you more information on the character's culture, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh that's about all I've got uh, to say about that. It's um I really enjoyed it. It was I definitely something I'm looking forward to playing again. It made me want to play Journey again as well. <laughs> yes, me too. Oh my god, I love that game so much. <laughs> Every once in a while I go back and read Journey reviews just because people <laughs> are so like wild-eyed and amazed about it and I'm just like what a good time. <laughs> yeah, I played it really late after everyone else. I only played it like 
last year maybe maybe the late the year before that it was very recent and i understood instantly why everyone had talked about it the way they had because it was just an amazing experience yeah i wonder what it would be like to go back and play now because i don't know if there are as many people in the sort of matchmaking thing i wonder if you'd find a partner now yeah well i mean i definitely found one then it was it was kind of cool because I, I went to a friend's party and um and so it was like really loud and everything and I kind of sat in the corner playing Journey and it managed to just completely immerse me in that world that I just the rest of the party just disappeared and I don't think many games really have that power. Wow, that's funny. I also like vividly remember my Journey experience because <laughs> a, a friend had a PS3, so I didn't play it at my house. I played it with a friend. And we ended up having like four or five people over to just sort of watch this game. <laughs> and we ended up meeting, uh, you know, another player who hung, hung out with us. And then they they died. Like they faded away Aww. right near the end of the game. Like near when you're trying to climb up the hill and all the snow is coming and you have to like yeah. keep warm. Our, our other player faded away and it was so cinematic and it was oh like this gosh. would be the moment in the movie that like you'd lose your friend <laughs> <And> I will <laughs> and I will never know who they were but they gave me a good journey experience and like me and my friends you know we haven't played it since most of us but we still talk about that that's amazing I love like games like journey that just give you the story like a really strong personal story within the game and i i love that so much and i think yeah the cooperativeness of it helps so much with that and i think going into absu that was the main thing i missed was having that kind of companion that journey gives you even though you kind of have one you kind of have a companion in um absu sort of but it's not really the same yeah for sure yeah so, um, yeah, is that all you wanted to say about Ebzu? I think so. I feel like I, sh I should have something more, but I'm not sure what else to say except that it's a beautiful experience. It's not, it's not photorealistic, but mm. it looks great on, on a big TV. It's really colorful, like visually. It's, it's wonderful. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's one of the prettiest games I've played recently. Yeah, even though it's not photorealistic, like the style is just so pretty. I love it. Yep. Yeah, so that's that's about that. Anything else that you think from a design perspective is particularly interesting? I mean, I definitely did play it with an eye to the narrative design through the world building. Um, I did think that, like, it was somewhat lacking in some places, and that might be because I should have found more achievements and gone through more of an effort to actually explore, which was kind of hard because my computer was lagging a lot. So I might give it another go when I have access to a PS4 to play it on properly. Um, I think the narrative design wasn't... It didn't tell a really strong story through the way it was presented, but it still built a really gorgeous world despite that. Yeah, and I struggled to say what bugged me, but I guess sort of what I was saying before about how it gives the impression of a really big world, but you're not necessarily sure what that world is populated with. Like, the the aesthetic doesn't quite stand on its own two legs. Mm. There's, especially at the end when it does get really abstract, I was a little bit left wanting more. 
Was that game like a metaphor for like life and death or something? I'm just making that up, but maybe it was. <laughs> I mean, it, it very much, it very much could be. There was a lot of sort of like, like heavenly sort of symbolism. Oh, I forgot all about the uh, like the other world. Like you go into, oh yeah, like, like you go the- into a sort of alternate dimension at one point. Like a spirit world kind of place. Yeah, it definitely has some stuff of like kind of spiritual life and death stuff in there that I totally forgot about as well. Um, So yeah, there's definitely a lot in the game, but it's hard to piece it all together into a coherent story. Maybe you were dead all along. (laughs) That's that's not it. That's not the spoiler. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) I think that's us for this episode. Megan, where can people find you online? People can find me online at uh, Den of Geek at StarWars.com. Sounds good. You can find me on Twitter at Wanderlustin, W-A-N-D-E-R-L-U-S-T-I-N. Um, I write for Toshi Station, um, who also happens to host this podcast. And I also write on my own site, NotSafeWork.com. And you can find us on iTunes and other places. Subscribe to us. Leave us a nice review. And don't forget to check the Western Reaches.